TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by a historian of 20th century Europe. His research and writing focuses on the political and cultural history of Spain since its transition to democracy in 1975. He's a current associate professor at history at the State University of New York. He sits on the Evolutionary Studies Board and is an associate director at the Journal of Evolution and Health. He previously taught at the United States Military Academy, West Point, and for the Ravel Humanities Writing Program at the University of California, San Diego. So it's great to have someone with such a research background, such a background in science. Welcome to the show, Hamilton Staple. Thanks, Brett. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> no worries. I almost mispronounced your last name, even though I only asked you 10 seconds ago how to do it, but we got there in the end. And, and we're going to talk about the past, the present, and the future of the paleo movement. So I think this is going to be a fascinating chat, one that I'm really looking forward to. But before we get into the nitty-gritty and the details, Hamilton, I'd love to know a little bit about you, and I think our listeners would love to know a little bit about you. Um, tell us about your background in history, and particularly how you got interested in evolutionary studies. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a historian. I have a PhD in European history. And when I was in graduate school a number of years ago, I happened to stumble across a book, a book called Health Secrets of the Stone Age. And this was back in 2002. And for a long time, I was interested in health and fitness in addition to history and also evolution and the big questions of life. Questions like, where do we come from? What is life all about? Why, why are we here? Um, where, how did humans evolve over time? So I was always really interested in those big questions. And this book, Health Secrets of the Stone Age, kind of for the first time put together evolution and human health. And I really became hooked on this idea. <clears throat> so I continued with my academic studies in European history and at the same time became increasingly interested in how evolution can inform us uh, about how to live better today. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a really interesting background to come from because I think sometimes uh, people who are sort of studying maybe more recent history uh, have have a different take on what evolutionary history might be all about because their concept of history may be uh, on a much shorter time frame from an evolutionary perspective and so you hear people talking about you know historical diets of perhaps 2,000 years ago and suggesting that well we've been doing it for a long time you know maybe that's okay but but obviously you went right back you know in terms of the evolutionary history as well and started looking you know right back to the stone age I have actually got that book Hamilton so I know the one that you're talking about um, and it's a great book um, so what made you particularly interested, I guess, to go from, you know, looking at history of the 1970s, you know, to go right back and look at the evolutionary stuff, aside from, I guess, just that book that you came across? Sure. So, the connection was, as I learned more about this evolutionary approach to health and disease and nutrition and human wellness, um, other people were, were becoming more and more interested in it as well. And this was in the, the mid-2000s, so 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And I noticed that this was becoming a, a social movement. This was more than just a couple people, a few academic researchers, but more and more people were becoming involved. And this is where the, I guess the two, the two sides of my interest really intersect. So 
in European history, I study, in many ways, social movements. So where social movements come from, how they develop, how they influence society, culture, and politics. And in particular, I, I've looked at Spain and the youth movements there in the 1970s, as, as you said. So I'm really interested in social movements. And what I saw was that this whole paleo thing was becoming a social movement as well. So... I don't have a PhD in biochemistry or nutritional science or kinesiology, so I can't offer the same kind of insights as those folks can, but I, I thought I could offer some insights into the paleo movement as a social movement. For example, who are the people who are doing this? Why did they start? What are their motivations? What are they after? And what might the future of the paleo movement look like? So those questions really fascinated me. And I began to give a series of talks and to write a series of papers starting back in 2012, 2013, talking about where this all came from, where we are today, and where the paleo movement might be headed in the future. Well, those, those are fascinating questions that I'm really looking forward to getting into because we're going to chat all about that. But before we do that, I'm just curious, did you have any sort of uh, personal experience with, with the paleo movement? You know, Did you make any uh, personal changes in terms of your health and your lifestyle and, and notice any changes? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those folks who I think people uh, – choose to explore a paleo lifestyle for two main reasons. One, because they're sick and conventional medicine has failed. And two, they're seeking performance. So some, some kind of athletic or mental performance. And I guess for me, it was a little bit of both, right? So I kind of had uh, some, some health issues and I was also really interested in, in improving my physical and cognitive performance. So that really attracted me to exploring how this evolutionary approach can optimize um, to optimize our, our well-being today. So I definitely have changed my diet. And it's not just diet, of course, and I'm sure you've talked about on your other shows, uh, it's circadian rhythm and exercise and social connections. And, and it's a holistic approach that allows us allows us as a species to live more in line with the environment that we are better adapted to. Nice. And so in terms of health changes and performance changes, what sort of stuff were you were you looking for and what sort of stuff did you see? Uh, I think like many people, I... Um, I was effortly lost some weight, some extra weight. I, I became much more fit, stronger, had better digestion. Um, really, across the board, it, it really um, changed my life in, in many ways, uh, in, in, for, in positive ways, for sure. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Great. So let's talk about paleo as a movement because I think from, from someone with your background to sort of be able to look into this movement and, and talk to us about it, I think will be fascinating for many people who have been sort of caught up in the swell of this movement and have, you know, seen positive changes for themselves and, you know, love to share it and love to be part of this, you know, what is now kind of a worldwide tribe that is paleo. So let's talk, let's talk first of all about the past. Uh, you know, what have you been able to discover about how this whole paleo movement got started. Obviously, it started a long time ago, but particularly, I guess, more recently, how it's become more popular and, I guess, maybe to a certain degree more mainstream. Tell us about how this paleo movement got kicked along. 
Sure, that, that's a great question. And I, I would start with a kind of, 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 of a preface to, to, to this whole recent story. And, and, and that would be that a hundred years ago, we saw a very similar movement in the West, in, in Europe and then in the United States and, and to some extent in Australia, although I'm less familiar with exactly what happens, what happens there. But there was this movement called the physical culture movement. And this was in the 1880s up until about the 1920s. And it is remarkably similar to what happened, what's, what's happening today. So the emphasis on, on um, whole foods and exercise outdoors and using nature as a guide to, um, to make better lifestyle choices in the present. And, and I think in many ways what happened then is very similar to what's happening now. So what was happening 200, uh, 100 years ago, excuse me, was the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. So there was rap- rapid social, economic, and technological change. So people felt really um, confused, disoriented. People were moving from agrarian societies into big cities for the first time. They were working in factories. They were no longer connected to the land, to natural foods, to their families. So this was a radical change in Western society. And you get the physical culture movement as a response, I would argue. So jump forward a hundred years to today, and what we see is, I would argue, that there was there's been this digital revolution, which has caused similar kind similar kinds of anxieties and dislocation about jobs and working and social co- connections and, and and all the things that we're familiar with. And the response, I would argue, or, or the paleo movement is in part a response to that. So it's it's about people trying to find uh, a sense of place, uh, a better sense of control in this rapidly changing world. And what we've seen is also rapid social, economic, and technological change with the digital revolution. So I think fundamentally both of those movements, the, the physical culture movement of 100 years ago and the paleo movement of today, they're fundamentally uh, reactions to the same kind of things. So that doesn't really answer your question about where it started, how it started recently. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe I'll take a um, a break there and allow well, you. Yeah, I, I'd be before we go into how it started more recently. I'd love to know more about that physical culture movement because, to be honest, that's the first time I've heard of it. Um, so I'm fascinated by it. So, um, what happened to it? How did it? You know, you said it was sort of uh, you know until the 20s. Did I get that right? 1920s, 1930s. Yeah. yeah. So, what happened in the 1920s, 1930s? Did it did it just sort of die a natural death? Did it still hang around? Has it been present since then? Yeah, that's such a question, right? And and historians still argue about this. But let me say this first, right? That physical culture movement of 100 years was incredibly popular, popular than the paleo movement is today. Huh. In fact, King George of England at the time had a personal physical cultural cu- culturalist professor that that basically um, gave him physical culture advice. incredibly widespread in the culture uh, in Europe and the United States. There were thousands, hundreds of thousands of magazines, um, subscriptions being being printed. And, and what's amazing is this whole movement is almost completely forgotten. A, a few years ago, I gave a talk at the Ancestral Health Symposium in 2012 at Harvard. 
and I gave a talk about this. So if you and your listeners are interested in, in uh, learning more, you can go online under the Ancestral Health Symposium 2012 and look up my talk. It's a 20-minute 20 talk. It's super fascinating. I compare what happened 100 years ago with today. There's some great images in there. So if, if interested in, in learning more about that, I think it's a great place for, for folks to start. To answer your question about what happened, that's really interesting. And I think there's a combination a combination of reasons. So we have to understand that in the 19th century, um, conventional modern medicine didn't exist like it, is, like, like, like it exists today, right? The doctors, MDs, didn't have a monopoly in many ways. It's not a perfect monopoly today, but, but there, is, there was no really conventional medicine. There were all these different approaches to medicine, naturopaths and water therapies and all different kinds of things. And and all these things sort of competed in the marketplace, if you will. And at the end of the 19th century, especially in the United States, the American Medical Association stepped in and said, hey, we're sort of going to um, set standards as to who can be a doctor and, and who can't mm. be. And it's at this time that the the physical culture movement starts to get pushed aside. But I think in many ways the real turning point happens in 1928 with the invention of penicillin. So before 1928, there aren't really good drugs, right? There's there's there are actually very few good cures to diseases. And when you have very few good cures to diseases, you really have to rely on prevention. Mm. And the physical the physical culture movement was all about prevention because that's all people had, really. So when penicillin comes along and is invented, we have this, for the first time, this really powerful drug that really works. Like antibiotics, like they really work. Like they really work well and for, for what they're designed to do. Of course, there are side effects, right? But but this was really maybe a magic pill. And I think was that, hey, today we have a magic pill for, for bacterial infections. Tomorrow we'll have a magic pill for heart disease. And the day after, a magic pill for cancer. Now, of course, that turned out not to be true, right? It, it's, it, it's much more difficult to do that than we expected. But for the first time in, in, in a lot of ways, I would argue conventional medicine like um, proved that it could really tackle disease and that maybe prevention wasn't quite as necessary when we have these really powerful new drugs. If I could just say, also, I think the other issue with the physical culture movement in terms of decline was um, the rise of fascism. So fascism in Europe and even certain strains of fascism in the United States, uh, unfortunately, especially in, in Europe with fascism, these new fasc the fascist governments in Europe, and they use the citizens of their country um, healthier, stronger, more, more, more vital, right? And so the physical culture movement is sort of tarnished, tarnished by association with, with the rise of fascism and eventually it's defeat and we'll and I mean, you know, we're we're very much, yeah, you know, and maybe this is more recently as well, but we're very much in the phase now of that focus on evidence-based medicine and randomized controls, and they can be really good for determining the effect of drug, you know, some penicillin, where it's, you know, you take the drug, you get the result. Whereas something like a, a physical, um, a physical culture movement is much more diverse. You know, it's it's much harder to determine elements of that movement having an effect and what if they're having on the health because you're not you're not taking a drug for global. Problem.
problem. Um, was that sort of move towards, I guess, a more scientific and evidence-based approach, uh, and particularly the way that was done, moving towards those real reductionistic studies, was that also part of this move away from the physical culture movement? It was absolutely a part of that. And in fact, I would add in, I would, to, to support what you're saying, I completely agree, was in the 19-teens, you have really for the first time, vitamins are identified, right? So before this time, food is just kind of food, right? It's kind of lump, lump of soft stuff on your plate. And people didn't really have a sense of how, what its individual components were. So in terms of this reductionist thinking, you're absolutely right. In the 19-teens, you have vitamins identified. You can say, oh, look, you know, we don't need to eat carrots, we can just you know, look for vitamin A. So there was absolutely this kind of reduction, reductionist thinking, both in terms of disease and in terms of nutrition, completely. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So you can sort of see that, you know, with the rise, I guess, of, you know, scientism, then, then we moved away from that sort of more holistic view. And, and, and that's also, once again, almost being replicated as we move towards the present, isn't it? So, you know, if we move towards the present time, there seems to be a real rise at the moment of that real focus on evidence-based medicine and, and very quite reductionistic medicine uh, at the expense of perhaps taking a more holistic view. I, I agree. I, I would see, I see it as a continuation, right? So from the early early 20th century, the, the, the sort of what we call now the mainstream medical establishment or conventional medicine, it has continued to grow and become more dominant and become, become stronger, and, as you say, with the randomized controlled trials. And, um, and what we see, I think, recently, and this comes from different groups, not just paleo, but the pushback against that, right? So whether it's veganism or paleo, folks are saying, look, this approach to health and wellness and disease is not working or it's not working for everyone or it's not working for everyone in every case or for all conditions and we need to be open to other approaches uh, or we need to be open to a more systems perhaps or, or functional approach to medicine and and I think this is in response to that reductionism and scientism that, that you were talking about a moment ago. Yeah, absolutely and we should say that, you know, I, I sort of say I lump it all in as evidence-based medicine but, you know, when evidence-based medicine is properly defined, it is using the best available evidence, but it's also using practitioner experience, which, which often seems to get chucked out, and also using patient preference as part of that evidence-based medicine model. And so, I think when that is done right, you do end up with a more holistic picture. When you when you have really experienced practitioners, you know, using their their art as opposed to just their science, then you can get that more holistic view. So I don't want to just tarnish you know evidence-based medicine either. Um, it, it certainly is important; it has its place. So let, let's talk about the the rise of this present paleo movement though you mentioned obviously the digital age and the i guess the the fear around that or the anxiety around that of what we're losing as a society as we move towards this digital age um you know how do you see that that caused this rise in the present paleo movement and where do you see that it's at right now yeah that that's great a great question so the current paleo movement really gets started in the 1980s. Uh, there was a paper published back in 1985 by Mel Connor and Boyd Eaton um, talking about this, this idea called the Paleolithic diet. And this is sort of the, the first recent academic publication that kicks this whole thing off. And then after that, the work of, of people like Lauren Cordain, um, he comes in and continues to expand this idea. Very prolific, um, wrote 
dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles and wrote some popular books and this continued to make it more and more popular but sort of the the the, the, the switch doesn't really get flipped on, if you will, until the mid-2000s, the mid-aughts. So 2005, 6, 7, 8, that interest really starts to peak. Lauren Cordain published his first book back early, I think, I think it's 1999 or 2000, and there's not a whole lot of interest in it. Hmm. But in 2008, 9, 10, the interest really starts to pick up. It, it's, it's hard to say exactly what, what is driving that. So I think there's uh, the effect of the internet and, and social mm. media and all, the, all these blogs. I think the blog by Mark Sisson and the blog by um, Art Devaney, the work of, of Rob Wolf, of course, is very important here. And there's a, there's a spread of these ideas. And, but again, I think people are attracted to these ideas because of these radical changes that are happening in their everyday lives. So uh, of and- being... In, being inside much more, being behind screens, feeling anxiety about their jobs going overseas or to computers or to robots, right? So I think, yeah. I think there's a drive to feel this sense of place and connection and reconnect to nature at this moment of, of transition and flux. Yeah, and, and do you think the, I guess, the diversity that creates in terms of um – of sources of information, you know, where now all of a sudden rather than relying on your medical doctor and and going to them and just purely listening to whatever they tell you and taking that on board as gospel, all of a sudden people are able to say, well, okay, that's one point of view, but I can now search the internet and find a million other points of view and and a million other possibilities and I can research for myself what might be causing these symptoms or what possible interventions I might want to take. And so all of a sudden, um, you know, I guess perhaps there's an opportunity there, if people are looking for something outside of that mainstream, there's a much greater opportunity to find that much more readily. I think you're absolutely right. And we see this in terms of media consumption, in terms of consumption in general. You no longer have to go down to your local store. Mm. You can buy something online from anywhere, right? So so everything we do now has become much more diffuse, right? Much You have many more options than you did before. And this is what's kind of ironic about this whole thing, right? So I, I'm arguing that it's technology that's driving this anxiety, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's technology that's enabling the alternatives mm-hmm. to help deal with the anxiety that came from the technology in the first place. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, we've sort of, I think we've gone through a period of absolutely demonizing kind of the internet and social media and saying how bad it is for us and how it can really negatively impact on our lives. And, and now now we're kind of starting to realize that there's this whole other upside as well and that, you know, I've got to think like, uh, you know, Dr. John Martini always says, you know, everything always has the, the good and the bad. It's, you know, there's there's a positive side to this information age as well, isn't there? A- absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of the paleo movement, the, I see the peak really coming in 2013, especially in, in mm-hmm. the United States, in the United States. So in 2013, before 2013, you see this really steep rise in uh, people joining the paleo movement. And and we know this because in 2013, I, I ran this um, online uh, survey of the paleo community and asking who's paleo and why are they paleo and how do they do it and what their motivations are. And that, and that, that survey, that study was published back in December of 2013. It's called Modern Cavemen, Stereotypes and Reality of the Ancestral Health Movement. And what we saw in that was that uh, between about 2010 and 2013, 
85% of the folks that had responded to the survey had joined paleo, had become part of the paleo movement, right? So there was this huge spike in 2012, 13, excuse me, 11, 12, 13, at the time we wrote the study. And then what we've seen since then, if you look at things like Google Trends, or if you talk to people who run big paleo websites, we've seen a steady actually decline in interest in paleo since that time. So we've had this, we kind of have, have had this mountain. We ran up one side and there was this peak, 2013, 2014, and then now we sort of are going down the other side. And um, it's not clear exactly where things are headed in the future. I, I, ha I have my own personal opinion, uh, but we've definitely had this this peak. Will it turn around and peak again? Possibly, but there's definitely been a shift. So there was kind of a, a heyday, if, if you will, where books were being published like um, Paleo Living for Dummies and The Idiot's Guide to Paleo, Paleo Diet, right? So these were published in 2013. So we had this really kind of um, moment in the sun, if you will, and now I would argue things have kind of leveled off and, and, are, and, are, and are moving down in terms of general interest. Of course, not everyone is giving this up, but it appears fewer people are coming into the movement and there's less interest in general as uh, to this uh, ancestral or evolutionary lifestyle. Well, that might be good news for people who are concerned about the rising cost of their you know, paleo supplies. <laughs> you know, I've noticed that as that movement went, there were certain things that went up considerably in cost. But, uh, but in terms of the movement in general, obviously, um, you know, the, the, what do you think it's moving? What are we moving towards? Then, if we're moving away from paleo, you know, what else is starting to come into the, into the, you know, into people's psyches, and, and what are people starting to move towards? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great question. So, I, I think. Um, I don't think the paleo diet is or was a fad. I don't think it's going away. I think it's actually the future of health and wellness and medicine, right? It's the this evolutionary approach is without a doubt, I think, um, makes the most sense. We, we we can't understand organism outside of the the, the theory of evolution, um, and and evolutionary approaches to to medicine and disease are going to continue to grow, and and it's happening. It's happening in the United States. Um, in these in these new programs, for example, for example, at Arizona State University, there's a new evolutionary medicine program founded by Randolph Nessie a year or two ago, and they are they are using this evolutionary approach to solve the problems of, of chronic diseases, but they're also at the same time very wary of the paleo movement at large. So it, it's a bit it's a big contradictory, right? They, they want to use evolution to understand human health, yet they're a little uncomfortable. It seems like with these people running around promoting, uh, certain paleo diets when, when these researchers don't think all the evidence is in yet. So maybe they're just being cautious or maybe they're just protecting their turf. I, I'm not exactly sure, but my, my main point here is that th this isn't going away. It's sort of, it sort of had this this popular popularity, if you will, in the, the general public. But this approach to understanding exercise and diet and circadian rhythms and pregnancy and old age, like like evolution, has to be part of the story. And in fact, 
conventional medicine is 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 confirming what folks in the paleo sphere, in the paleo blogosphere, or paleo books have been saying for a while now. So we see all this this inf- this interest now in conventional medicine in, for example, the the gut microbiome, or with circadian rhythms, and and folks in the paleo movement have been talking about this for years. Or or saturated fat, right? So mm. saturated fat has, was demonized. Uh, years ago, and the paleo movement said, whoa, you know, this doesn't seem right for these evolutionary reasons. And then now more recently, of course, we hear, well, maybe saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease after all. So what I see is is conventional medicine catching up with Mm. the paleo movement and continuing to confirm what the movement has been saying. And... uh, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, and I've got so many more questions I want to ask. But uh, yeah, and, and as we saw with the fat, you know, it took decades for that evidence and that science to come through, for it to get to the level of you know being taught at the university, you know, to, to to filter through the system to end up at the end range of practitioners recommending it. it. Takes a long time for that research to come through. But my question for you around the paleo movement of where it's going as it moves into this more, I guess, uh, mainstream phase as it starts to become more medical research around. That is, in the short term, do you think that's going to lead to perhaps the medicalization of the paleo movement to a degree where we may see, um, you know, wanting to, you know, recognizing that the gut's an issue but wanting to deal with that with drugs perhaps or recognizing that a paleo diet's a good idea but wanting to deal with that with, you know, different supplements or, you know, do, do you think we're going to sort of see a bit of a cherry picking there in terms of what's shown up in the research and how we try to maybe shoehorn some reductionistic um treatments into this paleo lifestyle yeah I, I think you're absolutely right that is such a good point so so with this so i i, I totally see where that where you're leading there so if you, you i'm glad you did use, it was a bit of an awkward question but i, but no, I think it, i got it there <laughs> it was it was perfect it was perfect because because conventional medicine could can use an evolutionary approach in in multiple ways, right? In more than one way, it can mm-hmm. use it to to prescribe better preventative measures, or it can use it to, to find more single reductionist drugs. And and I mm-hmm. think, and I know that that's happening as well. So, you know, we can figure out how blue light is damaging our sleep, and and then um, rather than turning off our screens at night or using blue blocking glasses. There's a desire to figure out what drug we can take to knock out that that biological process in our body, right? So, so I think I think you're absolutely right that that this evolutionary approach will be used to try to find um, more conventional treatments, and some of those conventional treatments might be really good, right? Again, to go back to antibiotics, right? Antibiotics are really, really good. They're really, really powerful and can be really, really helpful. So, so perhaps we will get um, treatments or drugs out of this approach that that will be really helpful. Or maybe we'll get just very targeted um, drugs that end up having a lot of side effects and and are not super helpful. It's mm. it's hard it's hard to say. And, and maybe a bit of both. <laughs> Uh, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I'll take that. Right, I'll take yeah. a bit of both. I, I would be happy with that. Cool. Hey Hamilton, this has been an awesome chat. I've really enjoyed this interview. I, I'm sure that our listeners have really enjoyed this interview. Um, obviously, if, if they want to find out more about you, they can go to hamiltonstaple.com, and that's H A M I L T O N. 
S-T-A-P-E-L-L.com. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. Um, and you wanted to make sure that they had a bit of a look at a, an article you wrote, which was going mainstream or just just a passing fad, the future of the ancestral health movement. Um, and they can find that on Jevo, J-E-V-O health.com. And once again, I'll post the, the link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. That was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I've learned even more about the paleo movement and uh, and where it might be, you know, where it's come from and where it's going next. So thank you for sharing your wisdom, Hamilton. Brad, thanks so much for having me on. I had, I had a great time and um, I, w- I wish you all the best with your podcast. Thanks, mate. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. That was awesome, Hamilton. I loved that. That was fascinating. Me too. Great questions. I'm so excited to talk about that stuff. It's not. It's not often that I get to um, to 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 talk so um, to delve into the research and the stuff I do with with folks who are are interested. So I'm I'm uh, I'm it's really honored to, to talk to you and be able to talk about my work. So thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's super fascinating. Um, I'm definitely going to go and listen to your uh, your talk on the at the ancestral health symposium, and I'll make sure I share that on social media. and uh, And I'm going to learn all about physical culture movement because I've never heard of it before and it amazes me that I haven't and I kind of feel bad that I haven't but it's uh, it sounds fascinating I'm going to get into it it is so amazing they were talking about all the same stuff right so they were talking about compressed feeding windows yeah so in first meal at 11 and 11 and ending early and they didn't understand all the bio the biochemistry behind it but they had figured out all of the same things that, that we know today so interesting um, it, it is it is for cod, cod liver oil, of course, right? So omega threes. Yeah. It, literally, just about everything that we talk about today is important. Was they just, had, had figured out. It's such a great example of how we kind of just chuck out this amazing wisdom in the name of science, um, because we sort of think, well, yeah, that might work, but it, you know, we haven't got the science to prove it. <laughs> you know, so it's like we chuck that all out, we'll start again, and then, you know, decades later, the science ends up saying, hey, that show wasn't, you know, wasn't too far off. <laughs> That's exactly right. And there's a, there's this crazy uh, American guy. There's a great book you might be interested in. Uh, it's the guy's the, the the man's name. The physical culture guy. His name was Bernard McFadden. And there's a book about Bernard McFadden. And it's really good. It's a, it's a, an easy read. I'm trying to look for it on my bookshelf here. It's called Mr. America. Actually, Mr. America. Uh, how Bernard McFadden transformed the nation through sex, salad, and the ultimate starvation diet. Anyway, it's a really good. <laughs> What a title. That's fantastic. It's a really good book about the physical culture movement in the United States. I'm getting it. That sounds great. Check it out. Done. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on this morning, mate. Um, It it was great to get you on at the the last minute. And sorry for the confusion last week, but it was definitely worth the wait. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing. I think people are going to just love it. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again for having me on. Thanks, buddy. All right. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.